You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 69. Today, we're sitting down with professional photographer and artist Victoria Hack from British Columbia to chat about the creative benefits of being a generalist photographer, some of the challenges with working with human and animal subjects, insights into how she creates her environmental portraits, and a whole lot more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Outdoor Photography School Digest. The OPS Digest is the newsletter that I send out on the last Friday of the month that contains a summary of all new OPS content, like this podcast, for instance, and also tips and resources that I think will help you on your photography journey, whether that's any courses or workshops that I may offer through OPS or from other sources like from our guests. I also include a featured photographer whose work I think you would enjoy learning about, and I share any photography or outdoor industry offers or deals that may be useful. I call the OPS Digest your monthly dose of outdoor photography information and inspiration. So if that sounds like something you would enjoy reading, you can sign up for free through the link in the show notes. Hello, my friend, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. I'm honored to introduce you to today's guest, Victoria Hack, whose photography I find to be captivating, elegant, and even magical. And it was really great to chat with her about her process and how she approaches her creativity and more. So let me give you a little background on Victoria before we go ahead and roll the interview. Victoria Hack is a professional photographer whose work covers the fields of landscape, portrait, wedding, event, promotional, editorial, stock, and photography education. Originally from the UK and having resided in British Columbia since 2007, she is heavily influenced by the beautiful landscapes that surround her. Combining her love of the natural world with her background in art history and anthropology, Victoria's ethos is to tread lightly while observing and finding the subtle visual story within any photographic genre she works. Victoria is proud to be a Nikon Canada ambassador as well as a low pro global ambassador. Additional collaborations she's had include Lee Filters, Purina, British Columbia SPCA, Vichy Canada, Narbox, Climate, TELUS, Heat Holders, and the National Trust, which is the largest conservation charity in the UK. Victoria's photography and writing has been published by numerous media outlets around the world, including the BBC, CBC, N Photo Magazine, Outdoor Photography, Practical Photography, Photo Life, Canadian Geographic, Vogue Italia, and on the cover of Digital Photo. And so without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Victoria Hack. Victoria, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Brenda. It's great to be here. Yes, I'm very excited for this conversation. 
So I've already given the listeners your bio in the introduction, but for people who are not yet familiar with you and your work, I was wondering if you can, you know, take us back in time. Tell us about yourself. You know, who is Victoria and how did you become a photographer? What did that journey look like for you? Okay. um, So I guess um, if we go right back to the beginning, um, I was always interested in art. So um, my family would have art books around the home and Mm. um, I would find myself looking at books on kind of Art Nouveau and just different types of art. And that kind of um, started my interest in art, I think. And at school, um, I you know, in, in, in school in the UK, you start with a very broad range of subjects. And I was always trying to narrow that down to something more specific, always kind of heading towards the arts, towards kind of, uh, sculpture specifically. Um, and, um, just kind of always wanting to narrow down that journey. And I ended up going to art college and, um, dropped out after a few months. And um, my dream of being a fine art sculptor sort of disappeared. Mm. And I'd been aiming for that for quite some time. Um, so then I just I just got jobs um, just for a couple of years, just doing um, a bit of nursing and um, just kind of basic jobs and then felt like I should probably go and study something else. And so I ended up studying art history. And mm. um, more specifically, I started... Uh, with a, again a, a fairly broad base of art history, and then my specialist areas were early Christian art and then non-Western art, and I found myself really drawn to non-Western art, and um, uh, it, it became more of an anthropology degree. So I started learning about different cultures and how their art was intertwined with um, with with their culture. It, you know, it was it was so much a part of it. Um, so I, I studied my degree. I finished that, and then I um, I volunteered for the National Trust, which is the UK's largest conservation charity. And I ended up working um, in a place called Brownsea Island, which is a tiny five hundred acre island in the UK. And um, that volunteer work uh, is a long story, but I met my husband whilst I was volunteering there. He was driving boats to the island. Um, nice. And we ended up moving onto the island. We had a cottage there and and you have you had to work for the National Trust to live there. Um, so mm. we, we moved to this island and we were there for 10 years. And it's basically when I was on that island that I picked up my camera um, that my parents gave me for my 18th birthday and um, started taking photos. And I think... Um, the reason for that was I lived in this beautiful place. It was a nature reserve. Um, as I say, it was only 500 acres. We had limited boat services, so um, we couldn't get off of the island uh, before 8.30 in the morning and after 4.30 in the afternoon. So we were kind of stuck there. You couldn't kind of go off and shoot sunrises and sunsets in other places or anything. But um, anyway, so life was quite small and I walked those island pathways on a regular basis and I saw how um, you know, the different seasons changed the environment, how uh, different weather conditions affected the same small area that I was covering over and over. And I think that's what prompted me to pick up a camera and try and record some of the things that I was seeing. And, uh, you know, I would walk those pathways with my dog, you know, take photos of him and take photos of the things that I was seeing. And then we adopted our daughter. Um, she was 10 months old. And so then she would come with me and, um, I photographed her and and 
you know, so really my photography started on a very small island photographing what was immediately around me. Um, and then um, my first client, I was really lucky, was actually the National Trust, who is, you know, the, la- the largest conservation charity in Europe. Um, right. But because I, wor- I worked for them um, and they saw some of my images, they needed some images of the island um, and, and they became my first client. So I was pretty lucky to, <laughs> to kind of start <laughs> off being paid that way. Um, and right. then... Um, I moved to Canada uh, 14 years ago, and we moved to British Columbia, to Salmon Arm in British Columbia, a very small town. Um, I'm sorry, I've missed a bit there. I should have said that when I lived on the island, I couldn't go to a camera club or something like that to kind of share mm. my photography or learn um, learn more photography techniques and things. So I ended up using the internet for that. And yeah. um, I was using specifically a site called DeviantArt, um, where, you know, you could look at other photographers' work and get some feedback on your own. Um, what time frame is this? Is that is this like early 2000s or earlier than that? So I was... I would say that because I've been in Canada for 14 years, so probably ab- about 20 years ago, I would I would guess now because okay, I was living yeah, so on this that is, island. Right. This is before YouTube University, basically. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, that wasn't yeah. available. And I, I remember getting the internet whilst we lived on that island and thinking, oh my goodness, like we have like encyclopedias in our homes now. It was incredible. Right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so I used the internet um, and, and I guess that's where I saw what landscape photography looked like at that time. Mm. That's kind of where, you know, and at the time it was those big kind of epic uh, scenes with, you know, huge foregrounds and that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, so, so that very much influenced the kind of thing that I then began to shoot if you well I couldn't shoot but I wanted to shoot because I lived on this tiny island Um, but when I moved to Canada I suddenly had these epic landscapes um, and had the ability to kind of chase those kind of images as well Um, Mm -hmm. and when I moved to Canada I I continued to use social media because I'd been doing that and um found that by sharing kind of landscape imagery, I was being asked to photograph people's families. And, you know, I don't quite know how that connects, but you know what it's like. People see you have a camera and then right. <laughs> um, they, they ask you to shoot their family. And eventually I started photographing weddings and all that kind of stuff, that kind of thing. And um, I guess I've always been, um, I, I, I guess I'm really interested in a very broad range of types of photography and what's very different is when I was at school and I was always trying to narrow everything down very specifically with my photography, I found myself um, wanting to keep things very open and wanting to move my photography in lots of different directions and and not wanting to be kind of put into a box in that way. That's a very long introduction. (laughs) No, it's it's wonderful. No, I love it. That's great. It's such a good, good background story. So you know, I've heard you describe yourself as a generalist photographer rather than as a landscape or portrait photographer. And it seems like you've continued this this broadening of of really excelling in multiple different genres of photography. And yet I think that a lot of professional photographers, their advice to people who are sort of starting out is to niche down, find your specialty and that sort of thing. And so I'm curious, do you think that being a generalist is your niche in a way? Because it's sort of a unique combination of being able to have such a breadth of different abilities in terms of your photography. 
Yeah, I mean, I know that I was advised, like everybody, to find my niche. And um, I think with photography, it's such a passion for me that I can't cut something out that I'm in love with and I couldn't cut anything out. You know, I just found too many things too interesting to be able to say that, you know, I'm I'm just not going to shoot that. Um, And so against all the advice out there, I continued to basically just shoot anything that I was interested in. And strangely enough, I think that being a generalist is what has sort of separated me slightly from other photographers. Um, and I know um, I was approached by, uh, you know, the the site 500px a few mm-hmm. years ago, um, and they asked me to write an article about being a generalist. And I hadn't even really considered that concept at the time. And I, I thought, well, I guess, yeah, maybe, I guess that's what I am. I'd never even, I never put myself in any kind of a box. Right. Um, and so I, I I wrote a piece about being a generalist, and I think one of the reasons why um, I have continued to shoot such a broad range is because I live in a very small place. I think if I lived in a city, I would probably have to be a specialist of some kind, but because I live in a small town and my business um, is is based here, I, I needed initially anyway to to be able to shoot many different things to to be able to make my business work. And so, um, yeah, I think that's why I also hung on to it from a business perspective as well. But I, I've just, I don't think I could ever let go of any aspect of, of the different types of things that I like to shoot. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, some people will say like, oh, well, I'm going to do, you know, portraits or weddings until I can make up enough income or build my landscape photography side of my business. And then I'm going to go all in on the landscape photography or the nature of photography or something like that. And, in, you know, the, the more profitable genres uh, is just what gets them off their, off the ground, gets the business off the ground, but it's not really what they're passionate about doing. Yeah. It sounds like for you, you are passionate about all these different things. And so I'm curious, you know, doing anything from events to weddings, to pet portraits, to landscapes, you know, there's such diversity in your portfolio. In what ways have these different types of photography cross-pollinated your approach to your landscape photography or to composition in general? Um, I think the one thing that just as a sl- slightly as a side note to that, I think the one thing that unites most of my photography is my love of nature, even though I am maybe shooting events or, uh, you know, portraits or something. If I can weave nature somehow into that, that's what mm. is the basis of all of it. Um, in terms of how much they have affected each other, I think I don't see, I, 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 they flow into each other. I don't see a separation between, you know, for example, if I'm in nature and I'm photographing a landscape and I'm with a friend and I feel like that, that scene may look nice with a figure in it, then I may ask that person to step into the scene. And then I don't think, oh, now I'm shooting, you know, a portrait. It None of that right. enters my mind. Everything just cross pollinates. So when I photograph weddings, for example, my ability to photograph a landscape means that if my couple are in a vast landscape and maybe they've booked me because they know, you know, maybe the landscape is really important to them and the place that they've chosen is in the mountains or something. Um, I can think about that scene in terms of how I would shoot it as a landscape, mm-hmm. but insert, insert figures 
you know, into that landscape. Whereas maybe somebody coming at it from purely a portrait perspective might think about that in a very different way. So I think there's just kind of a fluidity of thought, which allows me to cross over. And if, for example, I'm photographing, I don't know, let's say, um, I'm photographing a person or a dog or something and the, and there's the dynamic range is really high. I might decide to implement some of the skills that I have from my landscape photography background into, you know, h- how am I, how am I going to deal with that issue? You know, am I going to bracket the exposure somehow, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, my brain kind of, I think just it, it crosses over all the different genres. So they all actually really help, help me um, in so many different ways. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So your background in anthropology and how your study of art history led you down this path to studying how different cultures were using art to what? To tell stories, to pass on wisdom. You know, I guess I'm wondering, how is that weaving into your approach to your photography and and how you're thinking creatively? I think I when I studied non-Western art, I realized that basically Western art is a very small concept. Like it's just a very cultural concept. And so what we consider to be art um, is defined by our cultural perceptions of what that is, but it Mm -hmm. can be so many different things. So I think it, again, opened doors in my mind. And sometimes when I hear people saying, you know, I don't know, or, or coming up with rules within the nature photography world or something, I I feel like there are no rules, really. I've seen other cultures do things that, you know, are completely beyond any of these rules. Um, And so it's opened some doors in my mind and allowed, again, me to, to just be completely open to different things. I can't say I've always, you know, had that mindset, you know, when I was first starting out um, and then using the internet quite a bit to to learn, you know, landscape photography and things, seeing those kind of landscapes that I was seeing at that time definitely um, colored my vision of what I thought landscape photography or nature photography should be. Uh, yeah. But I've reminded myself now that it, it, it isn't that, and it can be, um, pretty much anything that we want it to be, we can approach it in any way that we want. Um, But there's always that um, thing where we're sometimes courting social media, maybe from a business point of view or something. So, so, so keeping in the back of my mind, you know, what do other people like or, and what do I like? So who am I shooting for? Is it for myself? Is it for, you know, my business? Um, Mm. And, and so trying to strike a balance somewhere between making sure that I'm photographing things that maybe other people won't be interested in. um, But I like them. I want to photograph them. Um, So, so kind of, not not being too worried about what what people think about certain images and things too. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it, it is hard to not have that social media little angel or devil on your shoulder, being like you know influencing what you're seeing because and what you're photographing. I, I find that anyway. That I do have to remind myself, like, oh no, I'm doing this for me, or yes, I'm trying to create something that would be effective on social media in some way, either a teaching point or. Uh, getting people to think in a new way or simply like, I think people would like this pretty photograph, you know, (laughs) you know, there's different uses for photography on social media. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, keeping that in mind and um, yeah, I mean, 
I think when you are running running this as a business, there, as you say, it is like that angel and devil situation. Sometimes you know you are courting um, you are courting other people, but other times I I know that I'm just shooting and sharing for myself, and it's trying to to kind of create that balance. Yeah. Would you say that having this broad background in the art history and the anthropological studies that you've done and looking at Western art versus non-Western art sort of gives you permission to experiment more in your creative outlets, you know, how you're expressing yourself creatively in your photography? Yes, I think so. I think, um, I think that it has definitely, I, I always come back to, to, you know, remembering that we are dealing with Western concepts of what art is um, and yeah. always just keeping that in my mind and knowing that it's so very different in so many other cultures that they approach things in an entirely different way um, really does allow me to feel like I can move in whatever direction I want, I think. And yeah, ultimately, yeah. when I'm not running this as a business, watch out because I'm just going <laughs> to do whatever I want. <laughs> I actually, I can't wait. Yeah. So that'll be amazing. Yeah, I'm kind of uh, looking forward to that too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, speaking about the, the business side of things, what are some challenges that you face when working with models, whether they're human or animal? Um, I think I'm a, I'm a fairly introverted person. And I think for some people, um, when you uh, when you're photographing people, that being you know, sort of projecting your ideas um, can be quite difficult, and kind of controlling a situation when you're you're a quiet person. But actually, yeah. I've discovered that. Um, Initially, I, you know, I felt like I had to go in with all the answers and tell people what, to, where to stand, what to do, how to look. And I've realized that actually sometimes when you have a quieter personality, you can build a rapport with the person and you can allow them to be themselves, to be quieter. It gives them that space to be themselves. So I find that I try to just put people at ease when I meet them and mm -hmm. I try to not over-direct. That's always my thing is just, you know, if I can photograph them as they are and maybe just give them a pointer here and there, I'm going mm -hmm. to maybe photograph something that's entirely different than if I, you know, always position them, always tell them how to be, then there's, it's just going to be another image that looks like another image. Whereas if I allow their personality to come through the way that mm -hmm. they want to stand, the way they want to be, the way they, they want to interact maybe with the person that they're with, then I'm capturing more of that person and their personality. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think that uh, being an introvert has probably helped me a little bit in that respect. Yeah. A lot of the female photographs that are just solo females, so not couples and, and that sort of thing. You know, they're wearing these beautiful flowing dresses or nothing at all. And so I'm, I'm curious, the way the fabric of the clothing and how it's interacting with the landscape or how their hair is blowing and all that, it's all so unified with the landscape and it's just so beautiful. And so I'm curious about when somebody either approaches you to do a photograph like that or um, you're working with a model and you're sort of creating your own vision of what that's going to look like. What's, what is the planning process like? Like, OK, we're going to use a white dress in this one or, you know, because I also I'm curious about how you're using color. I, I also noticed that a lot of the environmental portraits have a lot of complementary colors going on between either the woman's hair color or the clothing color of her clothing, but also the colors of the landscape or the leaves or 
even tonalities in the sky, which can be transient. And so I'm just so curious about like what goes into creating these types of compositions from a planning standpoint and also, you know, working with your client or your model on the vision for the photograph and then having that come to fruition when you are dealing with unexpected things like light and weather. Um. I'm not a planner. So I'm, um, I was listening to your interview with Colleen, actually, and I was thinking, wow, all her spreadsheets and things. (laughs) I'm the opposite of that. I am, I am the total opposite. So there's usually very little planning and and lots of kind of intuitive feeling. Um, So often many of those shoots, I am just out hiking with a friend and my friend is the model. And so we go somewhere, we have absolutely no plan in mind and we may come across something and then think, well, this might be a great place to get this kind of a shot. And maybe I've shot the scene as a landscape with no person in it. And sometimes I will add a person just because I feel like maybe it will add something or I'll shoot both or anyway. um, So there's often very little planning and it's just reacting to the environment. And if I'm hiking with a friend, she'll maybe say, well, should I chuck a couple of dresses in the bag? What colors do you think? And I'll think, well, it's fall, maybe, you know, like a yellow dress or, you know, we're going to a waterfall, maybe a white dress, or we're going, you know, we just kind of maybe throw in a couple of different options. Um, we often use wigs as well, because oh, as you can imagine, when you're hiking, you're pretty sweaty and right. <laughs> her, her hair is stuck to her head. And so, uh, you know, we can just pull out this beautiful set of hair and she can throw it on. Right. Um, that makes sense. And so, yeah, there's very little planning and it's just literally reacting to what we see, looking at what we have with us in terms of colors and what colors would look good in that environment. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really just very intuitive. That's um, great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, so for the types of compositions where you're really using a long exposure and the water is super smooth, I imagine you're using like a six or 10 stop ND filter probably. And then, but the subjects are, you know, perfectly still and sharp. Are you combining two frames in order to achieve something like that? Or is there a way to get your subject to be perfectly still (laughs) for, you know, a a 10 or 20 second exposure? Yeah. I mean, it it usually depends on whether or not the subject is, you know, standing in water, if the water's moving, if it's windy, there's lots of different factors that come into play. Often if they're lying down and their body is fully supported on something and the water's not really moving a lot and it's not super windy, then they may be able to hold that pose for 20 or 30 seconds if they're sort of lying on something that's really static. Um, Sometimes um, I'll have to do a couple of exposures, um, you know, a longer exposure for the, uh, to really smooth out the water. And then maybe a, one or two other exposures that are, are shorter in times in, t- in time, sorry. Um, and then combine the images afterwards for that. Mm-hmm. And so then you're using Photoshop and, uh, layer masks and things like that to combine. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Basically. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. And for the compositions where you have a subject in a, you know, icy, snowy landscape and they're wearing a very flowy dress, how do you, from a practical standpoint, how do you keep them comfortable? <laughs> well, um, or do you just like pay them a lot in, you know, hot chocolate <laughs> afterward? <laughs> it's usually alcohol involved, but no. Um, <laughs> um, for the most part, again, it would be a friend of mine. And so, you know, um, 
my, my one particular friend that I, I work with a lot, she actually has her Wim Hof training. So she's able oh, to wow. immerse herself in a, That's in amazing. a bath of ice. And so yeah. she's, she's really good to go. But usually what I do is um, plan everything, well, you know, as much as possible. So I'll figure out where she might stand, mm-hmm. uh, what she's going to do. And the same with putting somebody into into water um, or anywhere that's uncomfortable, you know, planning before they move into the scene. So what kind of body position are we looking for? We may have a couple of goes at that first while they're still wearing a coat and boots and all the rest of it. Get that organized. I may... um, shoot the scene first so that I've, I've got the dynamic range and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ask her to step into the scene. So I, if I think about particularly one, uh, wedding shoot I was doing and I was at Abraham Lake and it was minus 28 and the bride was not a professional model and she was freezing. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, I had needed, um, a focus stacked image because we wanted the bubbles in the foreground to be sharp. So we focus stacked um, and it was very cold. So I focus stacked the shot, figured out exactly where I wanted them to be. She could just run in or they could just run in, get the shot with them and run straight back out, get jackets back on. Gotcha. Um, so just to try and make it as, as fast for them as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. I love that mm-hmm. your other friend has the the Wim Hof um, yeah. training down. <laughs> That's so so helpful. Yes, it should be a requirement. If you want to work with Victoria, you have to get the Wim Hof training. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I, I've noticed and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's a style to your photographs, regardless of whether they're landscapes or portraits or pet portraits or a wedding. You know, there's a calmness there and even sort of a, an essence of mystery or, or magic. It's, they feel magical to me. And so I'm, I'm curious, how are you achieving that? Would you say you have a style and how are you achieving that feeling in your photographs, either from a technical standpoint or compositionally or, or in your post-processing? Um, I, it's interesting because I think like many photographers, you don't realize that you do have a style as a photographer. And, you know, when somebody says to you, I recognize your style, you think, oh, wow, you know, I didn't know I had one. So yeah. it, it's always really nice to hear that. Um, I think I find nature magical is the answer. Like I actually find nature magical. So whenever I'm in nature, I'm, it's always magical. Everything around me is magical. Right. And so it's really just trying to, um, to capture and, and capture that and kind of relay that to the viewer. And I think, um, sometimes it can be down to editing and, in and, you know, maybe editing slightly darker or, not laying everything out so that everything is completely visible. I, I, I often think that you create a story and you create a mood sometimes when not everything is knowable, not everything is understandable. So maybe it's a bit dark. Maybe some of the images are a bit soft in places. So it's not, mm. you know, entirely sharp all the way through. Um, so it's, it could be the capturing just a look, you know, as somebody turns their head. Um, It's so many different things, but I think if I feel like there's the potential for a story in an image, whether it's a landscape or, uh, you know, an image of a person or an animal or something, if, if it feels like there's the possibility of a story there, then I feel like I've sort of possibly captured something, Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm always trying to capture the magic of nature, the magic that I feel in nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it really comes through, you know, so 
I think I think that's the source of what's giving your photographs that people can look at them and say, oh, this looks like Victoria's work. And I think it's coming from that reverence that you have and, and that magical feeling that you have when you're out in nature, regardless of what it is, what your subject is that you're photographing. So, yeah, that really does come through. It's good. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so can you tell us a little bit how you approach your pet portraits, how you can get an animal to... I mean, they're just incredible. The way you capture their emotion, even their, the expression on their faces. What is it like working with a pet? I, I have pets. I've tried photographing them. I can't get them to pose for, to save my <laughs> life. And so how is it just a lot of time and patience waiting for that special moment? Or is there something that you're doing to have them to sit and look pretty so so much, you know? <laughs> um Again, it's um, I used to work in the in a shelter, so I love animals and um, I love working with animals almost more than people a lot of the time. Um, yeah. I, re I really do love them. Um, I think uh, one of the things I love about nature and landscape photography is the, the, the fact that you can't control it, that it's unpredictable, that you have to go with whatever it provides. And the same with pets I, mm. I feel like you know you can't make them do anything they're going to do whatever they want to do you can to some extent try to guide things a little bit um but it, i think i just love the fact that it's so random i don't know what they're going to do i have to be ready i have to shoot whatever they they give me yeah. um so I, I don't really have a secret i i think again it's rapport if they like you they're going to do more things for you right. um i i sometimes have treats. I sometimes have the little squeakers that my own dog chews out of toys and I keep them in my camera bag and they're quite oh. handy. Even <laughs> for kids, idea. you know, I just right. like one squeak and they look at you and then maybe you can get the shot and they're yeah. small. So they're easy yeah. to have with you. Um, but really, um, no, no magic. My dog Jack is the most badly behaved dog ever malamutes um they they don't do what you want them to do at all they only do what they want so, so i have yeah. to i just have to be ready you know sometimes i'll put him in a landscape image so i i will shoot the landscape first and then bring him in and he's always on a leash because he has the potential to run off at any second so yeah. i have to clone the leash out of his shot um and then just be ready for whatever he does and hope that he looks in the right direction or you know, it's all completely unplanned. I think that might be what you're gleaning from this is that there's not much planning at, right. at all involved in my photography. <laughs> it's really kind of fly by the seat of your pants. And it has been from the outset, you know, I've never really had a plan. I've never really had a plan in terms of, um, you know, my business. Um, it's completely unplanned. It's just, everything has just kind of happened without planning. That's great. It's not, it's That's not great. very helpful for other photographers, really. <laughs> There's been a lot well, of work, but not yeah. so much planning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think part of that is sort of uh, trusting the process and allowing yourself to see where success leads, you know, and follow that path rather than having a plan and then, you know, uh, letting certain opportunities go by the wayside because it wasn't part of the plan. Right. So maybe yeah. it's keeping doors open. And if you're just following the open doors without knowing which one's going to open next, you know. Yeah, d definitely. I mean, I, I think I'm I'm very much an intuitive photographer. And if I'm, for example, uh, if I'm approached by, let's say, a, a company to work with them, but it, it just doesn't feel right, uh, then I just 
don't do it. I, I've tend to, tended to always just go in the direction of what felt like the right thing to do, regardless of whether or not there was going to be more money in something else. Or, you know, this is just in terms of the business of photography. I've just gone with, you know, what feels right. Do, do my ethics align with theirs? Um, and just kind of moving forward that way, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking about working with brands, I understand that you're a Nikon and uh, low pro bags ambassador. And so I'm curious, you know, for listeners who don't know anything about brand ambassadorships, you know, what does that look like? What does that relationship look like? How did it get started? And then do you have any responsibilities as an ambassador when you're representing a brand in terms of how, how they expect you to work with them? I was initially approached by Nikon to be a uh, social media partner and um, that, that started the relationship. Um, we, I signed a contract to, um, you know, share some things on social media. Um, and then they asked me to speak at a conference, which for me was a very difficult thing because I do find public speaking really hard. And I had to weigh up, you know, how much was the relationship with Nikon uh, worth to me, you know, was I prepared to, to do this thing that I have struggled with forever from, you know, being at university and having to give seminars and finding that really difficult. Yeah. But I thought, okay, you know, I've, I've got to do this. I really, I really want this relationship. And um, so I, I, I did. And um, fortunately, they then approached me after that to become um, an ambassador. And I've actually found, I've found the relationship actually to be very freeing in terms of me now being feeling as though I can, I have, you know, the validation of, of, I think we're all, we're all looking for some kind of validation in terms of, you know, whether that's uh, doing well in a competition or something like that. And I yeah. think it, it has helped to give me a little bit of confidence in my work to, to feel like, a, you know, Nikon would like to work with me. So from that point of view, it's been very freeing and Nikon are extremely, uh, free with, you know, what I produce. There's no restrictions on anything. Uh, it, it's been wonderful. That's great. Um, yeah. So I, I found them to be excellent to work with in terms of, you know, what I have to give to them is some speaking engagements again, which are difficult for me, but yeah. it's something that I'm working on. And um, I, I, I feel like if I can, it will actually be something that that as a person, if I can get through being able to speak in public, it's something that I've struggled with my entire life. So if, if, if this helps me do that too, then it, it's, it's another really good thing. Yeah. So all around, um, yeah, just a, a really good relationship. I can't really think of anything that is difficult or restrictive. Obviously, you know, I couldn't go out and pick up somebody's cannon and shoot with that. That, right. that, that wouldn't be good. <laughs> um, and, and, and the same, you know, working with low pro, you know, I, I, I couldn't really go and use an F-stop bag. So, you know, obviously there's brand loyalty if you're an ambassador. Yeah. Um, but I, I, other than that, I've, I've, I've really found the relationships to be very good and, and non-restrictive. And, you know, as I say, with the Nikon uh, partnership, it is pushing me to kind of grow in a direction that is, is difficult for me, but I think I need, I need to do that. So it's, it's been good. Yeah. Yeah. That is great. I mean, win-win all around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is one of the perks that you get to test out gear that has yet come to market? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been very lucky to get my hands on, you know, some gear that has, has not come to market yet, which is fantastic. Um, obviously, we get some insight into new equipment and um, being able to have access to 
um, uh, you know, I, if I have an issue with my with understanding something on my camera, I can I actually have a direct line to Nikon, which is wonderful. Yeah, um, I'm a fairly non technical shooter again, an intuitive shooter. So I the technical side of things sometimes I can struggle a little bit with. Um, so actually having that direct line is is really wonderful. So yeah, I'm I'm very lucky to have access to that. I I. Uh, can also borrow stuff from from Nikon if I want to, which is really handy. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I understand that you made the switch to mirrorless recently as it I'm also a Nikon shooter. Okay. So I'm curious what your experience with that has been. Yeah. Um I with my ambassadorship, it was my opportunity to get my hands on a D850 when I first got my ambassadorship and I absolutely loved that camera. So yeah. um then Nikon gave me the Z7 to try and I had the D850 and uh, I actually didn't really want to try the Z7 because I just loved the D850. Right. <laughs> um but they lent it to me for 6 months, which was a good move that's, on their part. Yeah, that's yeah, a great but- amount of time. It is. And and especially for me, because as I mentioned, you know, if you're not somebody that's particularly intuitive with technology, um, I take a bit of time to get used to things. Um, mm-hmm. and, but I did find it pretty simple. There were a few buttons that I didn't have on the body that I had on my D850. But once I programmed those, I found the switch really good. The lenses were incredibly sharp. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that was one of the main differences, being able to... Um, handhold with the image stabilization, having the, um, oh gosh, what's it called? The, um, focus peaking or the focus peaking. Exactly. That's, that's really useful as well. And then it actually, when Nikon asked for the camera back, I found that at that point I didn't want to give it back. And I realized that I was, I was sucked in. No, no. Exactly. Exactly. So then, yeah, I was just like, Oh, I don't think I can actually part with this thing. And so that was, that was really the, the tipping point and I ended up going mirrorless and I, I love the lightness of them as well. It's oh, so yeah. nice. It but really I think is. It's, the, it's the lens quality that's so, so good. So sharp. Yes. I, I also went from, well, I went from a D810 to right. a Z7 as my first mirrorless segue. And, mm-hmm. um, but it was a debate between the D850 and the Z7 at the time. And so I had rented right. both camera bodies and, you know, had them for about a week each to kind of compare and contrast. And the D850 was pretty much exactly like the D810 in form functionality, uh, obviously a better camera, but just how it felt, where the buttons mm-hmm. were, it was going to be like a direct parallel switch for me. Um, yeah. But so big and heavy, when I finally got the Z7, I was like, whoa, what am I doing? Like the quality of the images is as good, if not better, certainly better than the D810 as good as the D850. I I couldn't tell any quality difference between the two photographs that I was testing Mm -hmm. out and so much lighter. And I was using Tamron and Sigma lenses with my D810, right? which are also super heavy. You know, like the Tamron 24 to 70 F 2.8 is like twice as heavy as the Nikon Z 24 to 70 F 4. And I never use it at 2.8. Mm-hmm. most, you know, very, very rarely would I need to open it up that much. And so, yeah, it's just been a tremendous, I, once I got, once I decided to make the leap and I got the Z7, mm-hmm. um, I kept the D810 for a while and I was just like, I never touched it. <laughs> That's right. That's what I did. I had them sitting there. I was like, but I might need those. But in actual fact, I, yeah, I just, uh, I didn't want to, did you, did you have you switched over to mirrorless lenses altogether now or are you still using the FTZ? Right. Yeah, I have a couple with the adapter 
but I have a 24 to 70, 70 to 200, 2X teleconverter. And I just recently got the 105 macro lens. That's a beautiful lens. Yeah, yeah. I'm so excited about that. So I'm pretty set. I don't really need, I almost never shoot wider than 24. I, d- I rarely do night sky photography anymore. And if I need to do that, I have a lens that I can use the adapter for to go, mm-hmm. you know, to do a 14 to 24. And then I have a Sigma 50 to 500. That's an F mount. I really like that lens and having the 500 is nice to have that extra mm-hmm. reach for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But man, it's heavy. <laughs> right. So yeah. It's but- uh, yeah, I'd have to have a very specific use case to lug it out into the field. Yeah, I've I've have the twenty four to two hundred, which is a really nice walk around lens too. That have that length and it's tiny and it's super light. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, a lot of the photography I do is uh, not pre planned. Again, you know, I'm out with the dog and I'll just see things. So having the twenty four to two hundred in a tiny little pack, and then sometimes the macro as well. And the macro one hundred five doubles really well as a nice portrait lens as well. So you, yeah. you, you know, you have the opportunity to, to shoot portraits if you have your dog with you and you want to shoot the dog and you, you know, so it's a, it's a nice all rounder yeah. and there's a tiny, tiny little 50 macro, which is really, really small. Yeah. Um, handy for walk around stuff as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've been, I've been thrilled with it. So I'm glad to hear you've had a positive experience as well. Yeah. Yeah. And no, it's, it's been really good. So tell us a little bit about where do you get your inspiration from and how do you keep the creative juices flowing? And do you ever experience burnout and take a break or does that not happen for you? Um, I, I think, you know, I think everybody experiences or most people I would think it would experience burnout to some degree. I think I'm pretty lucky in that it doesn't happen very often. And I also think that shooting across the different genres does help me sometimes because although I may be feeling like I'm not sure what to shoot in nature, if I have, you know, a, a wedding shoot to do or something, I, I still have to pick up my camera. I still mm. have to go out and shoot. And it will often help me through those periods when I feel kind of lackluster and I'm not sure what to shoot. But I think um, uh, I, I think sometimes going somewhere different will be inspiring and can, can kind of push you through that. Mm. Um, I've learned to not force it. If, I, if I'm feeling like I don't feel inspired, then maybe taking my camera along, but not chastising myself if I don't get it out of the bag, but having it, if I find something interesting, um, all of that, um, all of those things are are ways that I kind of push through it and reading sometimes just doing something entirely different, um, Mm. you know, reading an inspirational book or watching a video. There are so many different ways that I think you can spark your creativity, but I, I, I think I've learned to not be too harsh with myself and not chastise myself um, if, if, if things are not kind of coming to the fore. Do you ever go back to sculpting or any other forms of art? No, I haven't. I feel like maybe I, I, I should, but at the same time, I'm kind of so obsessed with photography that there's not really much room for anything else, you know? Um, And I feel like some of my interest in sculpture is, uh, comes is now kind of coming through in my photography. So some of my humans in the landscape, I now recognize that was some of the stuff that I was doing with my sculpture back in the day. So I was actually creating large human-sized forms in the landscape. Um, 
and and now I'm just kind of photographing humans in the landscape. And I didn't even make that connection until someone, I was chatting to someone on a podcast and she said, oh, I've noticed this. And I thought, that's that's actually it. That's actually it. And I yeah. didn't even realize. So I think all of that stuff that's kind of buried in your upbringing, in your past, it's all in there and uh, kind of comes to the fore sometimes without even realizing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting to think about that and how how you are creating sculptures in the landscape now, just in a yeah, photographic it's form. Just a, yeah. It's just a different, It's a, and I guess you know, it is, it, she is standing there in the landscape. There's the sculpture. Right. I'm just cap- capturing that moment and it then becomes a photograph. So, yeah. 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 That's, that's great. So I understand that in addition to working on your own creative work and doing your client work and commercial work and stuff that you also do photography workshops as well as some one-on-one mentoring. And so I'm curious if you can share with us, what's your approach to teaching? Uh, it's, I, I really feel like um, trying to allow people to approach subjects from their own personal standpoint is 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 what I want to try and help them to do. So um, if we're in a landscape, you'll often see people moving in very different directions if we're, you know, on a work in a workshop situation. So some people will be drawn to the grand landscape. Somebody will looking at be looking at tiny flowers over there. To me, the scene may be something quite obvious, but to somebody else, it's something entirely different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just trying to help people to go in the direction of their own vision and to, to trust their own vision. And I think that's how you become um, a unique photographer is, is, it is you know, not everybody setting their tripods off up and looking in the same direction, um, you know. So just a, really trying to help people to follow um, their own vision is what I, I want to to try and help them with. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I, I also don't like the idea of, you know, being elbow to elbow with tripods and everyone doing the same photograph and instead trying to find what are you connecting with in the landscape. Yeah. So before we wrap things up, are you up for doing a lightning round? Yes. Yes. <laughs> no one has yes. said no yet. So that's okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So what is your favorite subject to photograph? Nature. It's broad. Mm. Yes. Yeah. No, but that's good. Yeah. What's your most used aperture for your environmental portraits? Ooh, probably F11. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where do you most love to photograph when you're just creating work for you? I love to photograph locally. Mm-hmm. So in British Columbia, on on yeah, in your little just, town, just very very locally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Me too. Actually, I love just photographing within you know an hour's drive of my house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite light to photograph in? Ooh, um, I would just uh, soft light. I think soft mm-hmm. light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is your least favorite saying in photography? My least favorite saying, um, that is the shots right there. Mm, (laughs) It's like, there's the shot. (laughs) It's like, no, it could be there. (laughs) Right. Yes. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. What is something that people would be surprised to learn about you? Oh, I love uh, hip hop. (laughs) Oh, nice. Do you like to dance? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when 
and no one's watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Sure. Well, I, I do as well. Actually, I'm I grew up in New Jersey, and so you know the '90s hip hop house. You know that was a big thing when I was yeah. growing up, and uh, I also love to dance. Except right now, I can't. So. No, someday. That's right. With my boot. Someday we should have a little dance party together. (laughs) (laughs) That would be fun. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Final question. What does connecting with nature mean to you? Um, what does it mean to me? It just means it's, I guess uh, I've learned that it been, it means being mindful. It means being present. Mm. Um, and it means putting, um, putting everything into or everything being in nature uh everything is in its right place everything is where it's supposed to be and bringing that into my own life has been a big uh teaching for me a big thing that I've taken from being in nature that everything is in its right place it's where it's meant to be whether it's decaying whether it's blooming is where it's meant to be mm, yeah i love that it's sort of a like a taoist interpretation I don't know right. if you're familiar with that, but, you know, I remember one example was in in Taoism, you can say, well, if you taste vinegar, it tastes bitter. And instead of that right. being like a bad thing, it's like, well, it's supposed to taste bitter. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So it is what it is, you know, and it's yes. exactly how it should be. So, yes. Yeah. 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 It's a big lesson to bring into your own life, I think. It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Well, Victoria, this has been wonderful. I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to to chat today. If people wanted to learn more about your photography and your other work, what, what would be the best way for them to find you? Um, I have a website. So it's uh, www.victoriaharkphotography.ca. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can also find me on social media. So I'm on Instagram um, as Victoria Hark. I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook as well. Excellent. Well, I will put all the links in the show notes so that'll be easy for people to find. And thank you again so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Brenda. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. You bet. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Victoria Hack. And again, you can find out more about her photography and educational offerings on her website at victoriahackphotography.ca. Again, thank you, Victoria, for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. I appreciate you. And I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. You can find the links to the information we talked about today in the show notes at outdoorphotographypodcast.com slash 69. And while you're there, if you're enjoying the podcast, you can show your support by leaving a rating and review or buying me a coffee, which is like a podcast tip jar, or you can simply share the podcast with someone who you think might enjoy it with just one click. And thank you to everyone who has shown their support so far. I truly, truly appreciate it. And last but not least, I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll share a practical photography or outdoor tip and or answer your submitted questions. So if you have a question or a topic that you'd like to suggest for a future Tidbit Tuesday, I'd love to hear it. And you can record your message or contact me at outdoorphotographypodcast.com. And until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.